Hello, and welcome to the Good Intent, Good Impact podcast. For this season, we are going to continue our discourse on critical race theory in the United States. Um, And for this episode, I want to talk about a very specific book that if you have not read it after getting through this podcast, that needs to be the next thing on your to-do list, especially if you are going to be trying to do the work of dealing with the anti-CRT narrative that is out there. The book is Strangers in Their Own Land by Arlie Hochschild. And I always struggle with whether or not I'm saying her last name correctly. So I hope I am. If not, to the author, I apologize in advance. Um, But this book, just to give you a quick overview of it, This person goes to Louisiana to do a study of her own to try to figure out why individuals, particularly those who we may associate with, you know, some of the most staunch Republican supporters, Trump's base supporters, uh, Tea Party folks, why it would seem as though they would vote against things that are in their own interest. And she takes a, a particular like interesting um, approach to this because she really uh, attacks this from the environmental lens because of what's going at down in some of the places in Louisiana, the, the level of pollution, like what people down there have been exposed to has been atrocious. Um, but yet these folks tend to vote against a big government uh, and big government meaning to protect them, like with the EPA, if you will. From these kinds of things happening to them. So she went down there to try to figure out, like, what's the deal with that? Like, why? what's going on with that? Um, and so I'll leave you to read the remainder, you know, of the book to see for yourself kind of who she talks to, the interviews she does, and kind of some of the conclusions she comes to. But one of the biggest chapters that for me was really important, not just as it relates to this conversation about why people are so anti-CRT, but just for me as an equity practitioner. This chapter was so important in helping me to think through certain things and reframe things in a way that has helped me in my approach to doing equity work, frankly. Um, And the chapter is called The Deep Story. And at the beginning of the chapter, she says, well, everyone has a deep story, right? (laughs) So like, Say, you know, you're in a relationship. I, like I said, I just got married, right? So like, I have to know my husband's deep story. Like, what's his background? Like, what are the things that make him tick? What are the things that are super important to him in order to be a supportive wife and in order to be a supportive partner? He has a deep story that's personal to himself and vice versa, so do I. Like, I have my own deep story <laughs> where, you know, he has to understand that about me to be a supportive husband. And taking that micro level example to a macro level viewpoint of as it relates to racial relations in the United States, clearly there is a deep story for everybody involved. Um, And the author, she gets into the the deep story and tries to frame it um, for these individuals who she outlines are mostly white, male, They tend to be a bit older, as well as people who are traditionally God-fearing folks or Christian folks, if you will. And so she talks about in her analogy that she uses or the metaphor she uses, she talks about these folks standing in a line. 
And they're in this line because they are waiting to achieve the American dream, which if you can imagine like how I've imagined it, like this really big field with people standing in the line and just over the hill, if you can get like just over that hill, you can get yourself to the American dream, whatever you might define that to be. These people have been standing in that line, working hard in that line under the hot, hot sun for a very long time. And because of how certain things have shifted and changed in our society, they feel like they're not really moving fast enough. They're not really moving to where they wanna be. And it's very concerning and upsetting to these folks. And then on top of that, despite in, in, in addition to the line <laughs> moving really slowly, there are people who to them are taking advantage and getting in front of them in this line to the American dream. And they call these people the line cutters. Now, I'm gonna give you one guess <laughs> on who for these folks are the line cutters. Just to name a few identities that are involved in this. Black people, immigrants, women, and she even in the book talks about the brown pelican being in front of these people in line. And again, I will let you read it for yourself to understand how the brown pelican made it into this deep story. But long story short, these folks feel like, why the hell are all these people being able to cut in line in front of us seemingly with the help of the federal government through things like, for example, affirmative action programs at colleges and universities, or they might think or say their hard earned tax dollars going to quote unquote, welfare queens. Um, to them, they are doing the work, they're busting their ass, and then all of a sudden, here comes all of these people who don't look like them, cutting in front of the line <laughs> to get to the American dream. And at one point in the chapter, she talks about how like she she kind of says, well, who's in charge of this line and who's letting this happen? And she uses Barack Obama as kind of like the stand in for the guardian of the line. And at one point she kind of, you know, goes on to talk about how she how she interpreted how these folks think of Barack Obama's like, who the hell put him in charge of the line? How the hell did he rise as high to be the president of the United States? Who was helping him out? What cheating was going on behind the scenes to make that work? Um, and so to these folks, right, this is their deep story. In terms of their place in American society and how that place is becoming more fragile, how that place is becoming more uncertain, and the anxiety that goes along with what they think of as the line cutters and the government helping the line cutters, which speaks to why they don't trust the government and thus they don't want to vote for the party who is, you know, pushing policies that are in, in the grand scheme of things from an environmental standpoint in this case are in their interest is because that entity is part of the federal government, which they feel like has sold them out, frankly, um, and that they feel like they cannot trust. Um, and so hence, you know, part of the reason at least why these folks tend to act the way they act, vote the way they do, and promote policies in the way that they do. Now, 
want to get past that part, right? Like, it took me a while to get past that part. I was like, oh my God, this makes a lot of sense. It's very, for me, it's very disturbing, but it does make a lot of sense. I think in this example, again, if you are trying to do the work of dealing with the anti-CRT crowd, I think there's some things in this analogy, or this, I keep saying analogy, this metaphor, that are really important to point out to help you understand the gravity of what it is we've got going here, okay? These folks who are in this line, right? The first thing to think about is that they're oblivious to the fact that the, the line was really only created for them, right? Like, for a long time, right, people that I mentioned, black folks, women, a whole lot of other people, weren't even allowed access to the line to the American dream. Um, they don't seem to really be aware of that. And so for them, right, like the line has always been theirs. The country has always from the beginning been theirs. It was founded by white male religious men, particularly those who believe in God, Christian men, okay? They created the country, they created the line. The line was stewarded by these men and people in those categories were intentionally, methodically and systemically left out from being able to have even access to the line. I would like to think, or in my own mind, I think to myself, we really didn't even get like access to the line. And again, it's not really full free access. It's just like we've gotten a little bit of access to the line in the last 60 or so years out of a country that's been around and it's been established for hundreds. Um, and so it's important to think about the line as privilege. That's what I make that equate equivalent to. It's the privilege that they're losing, that they are aware that they're losing. They are upset about that. And frankly, they're right. <laughs> That's the whole point of the struggle is to dismantle the system of privilege so that it no longer exists. And if you throughout generation after generation after generation in your family, have been told that this line was created for you, it was meant for you, it will always be there for you. And then you have other people who that line to the American dream was never meant for all of a sudden, quote unquote, jumping in front of you. It would make sense rationally that that would piss you off, right? So the response in my view of what we're seeing with not just this whole anti-CRT stuff, but a lot of the different things we've seen in the past decade or so are predictable responses to particularly, again, the intersection of white, heterosexual, Christian males losing the platform that was given to them and was sustained for them over hundreds of years. Another piece of media that I think sums this up well, and that I think is also important to consider, 
is an episode, it's the very last episode of season one of the series Mad Men. Um, and for those who don't know, Mad Men is about um, mostly white male um, folks who are ad agency guys in the city of New York in the 1960s. And at the end of season one, Don Draper, the main character, he is preparing a pitch um, for a product that is basically a, a slide projector, like where, you know, you, you put the pictures in and you click the button and it, you know, goes through the slideshow of the pictures um, for a client um, and trying to figure out like what to name it, what to call it, how to sell it, all that kind of stuff. And as Don is thinking about how to prepare his presentation to the client, it dawns on him that the pictures alone and the memories themselves are not necessarily what's going to move someone to pick this particular product or buy this particular form of technology that at the time would have been very new and very flashy and spend the money on that. What's going to move them is the emotion. And so he talks about how the pictures evoke a certain emotion of a certain time in their life that is good for them or happy for them. He talks about the nostalgia that looking at those pictures of your family, of your friends, of your graduation, of birthday parties, all that kind of stuff, and being able to take a moment to relive those memories and live that nostalgia of a different time, especially if times for you are much more difficult, is delicate, but it's potent. That example is a micro level example but that same framework of the nostalgia of a different time being delicate but potent, I believe applies to this much larger situation we find ourselves in. Because for those individuals at that intersection of white heterosexual Christian maleness, they had better times before, again, because everything was made for them. And they long for that time regardless of what that means for the rest of us. I don't really think they care what that means for the rest of us. As long as they're able to reshape the line and the past of the American dream in the way that it was always promised to them, that is what is going to pull on their emotions. That is what's going to pull on their heartstrings. And the white women who oftentimes are standing beside these white men will go along with it. Again, even though to some extent that's against their interests because they're women, right? They're also an historically marginalized group. But in the same way that these folks don't want to, you know, go along with the party who wants to have the EPA because it'll help them to have clean water and air, the same pathology exists, I believe, with the women who go along with this with their men for whatever reason they feel like that that's more important than securing the liberatory rights of not just themselves, but a lot of other people. So as you think about what it means for you to do the work of anti-racism, particularly if you are going to tackle the anti-CRT movement, this is what you are dealing with. And if you are not clear and you do not understand how powerful this sense of nostalgia ownership is if you do not understand why these people feel like strangers in their own land because let's be clear to them it belongs to them it has always belonged to them then you are not going to be effective at dealing with it you have to deal with this part of the equation in order to do the work 
that will get us past this whole mess of we don't want anti-racism education in their schools because to them it is legitimately a threat to their way of life it is legitimately a threat to their future